Luke 7 is where we'll be. Um, we uh, came off last week from this idea of um, what it means to have uh, Christ as the treasure of your heart and how that transforms your heart and your life. So Jesus is, in Luke 6, Jesus is coming off this big sermon that he preaches to a large uh, multitude of people. And, and what Jesus does is he communicates to this large crowd and he tells this large crowd that many of you here will not hear what I'm I'm about to say. He says, he who has ears, let him hear. You see that throughout John's gospel. You see that some in, in Luke's gospel. And, and there's going to be some that will hear, and those are called his um, disciples. And his disciples, they hear the message, and it, and it impacts their life, and it impacts their heart and their soul. And so uh, what Jesus is doing here, he is showing us that the crowd... The crowd that shows up, the people that come out of the woodworks just to be amazed at the miracles of Jesus, the words of Jesus, they actually don't hear him. And Jesus is not as concerned with the crowd as he is his own disciples. It's just really clear. Okay, so let me, let me give you a couple of examples of that. If you think back to what the largest miracle that Jesus ever performed, what was it? The feeding of what? Seriously, the feeding of what? And you can't answer it. All right, the feeding of the 5,000, right? Um, and that the 4,000 would be next. Um, and, and by the way, th- it's literally 20 or 30,000 people because that's just counting the men, the head of the households of 4,000. So it's like 20 or 30,000 people uh, that Jesus feeds with a snack pack, all right, with the snack pack. And so you've got all of these people gathered. You've got all of these people coming and hearing, and you say, wow, what a great miracle. What a great uh, opportunity for Jesus. And then... Later, he gives a a cunning statement about what it means to follow him, and then they're all gone. I mean, do you see these people at his crucifixion? Do you see 20,000 people rooting for Jesus at his crucifixion? No, it's like a handful. It's like a small little handful, like his mom, right? His mom. Peter denies him. So so what is it really, when we look at this, uh, when we look at what are we calling people to when we're saying follow Christ, give your lives for Christ, what are we we calling people to? Because I think that's that's really, really important. As we look at um, so many of us who who claim um, to know Christ, how many of us actually do? How many of us actually believe in what he's actually calling us to? And I think think the problem is, and what we... uh, the crux of really what, what lies in this, do we follow Jesus or do we, or, or do we not, it really lies within, do we trust his authority over our lives? Because I look at this, you look at the feeding of the 5,000, you look at these large crowds who are coming, these aren't followers, these aren't followers, because these people would not submit their lives to Christ. That's the big deal. That, that, that's the hard part, isn't it? That's the hard part. Because praying a prayer is one thing, but submitting our lives to his authority, and I'm going to keep using that word, authority is the hard part. And so the, what we're asking people to do when they receive Christ, saying, do you believe in God who is control of all things? That's what we're asking people to do. We're asking them to submit to the lordship of Jesus. We're saying, do you believe that God is in control over all things? And does he have the authority? Does he have the right over your heart? 
Have you given, have you, have you submitted and surrendered your life to Jesus? So it, it, it matters that we have a clear understanding of God's sovereignty and God's control over everything. The good, the bad, the ugly. He's got control over all of it. And it matters. It matters that we, that we understand that, that we see that. The most mature believers I know, the most mature Christians that I've ever seen in my life, have this unbelievable idea of God's sovereignty and control over all things. Because when they go through suffering, they say God is in control over that. And God is putting me through that for his good, for his glory, so that I would love him more in the end. I think it's important that we grasp this. I think it's important that we understand God's sovereignty. Here's another example of that. How God has began to show me and shape me in my life and understanding God's control over all things and God's sovereignty over all things, it even challenges the way that I view missions. Here's what I mean. Early on, um, back in the day when I didn't really see God this way, that he has control over all things, I would see it as, well, I've got to find an opportunity to be a missionary. I've got to look on, you know, web pages. I've got to find resources. I've got to go ask my pastor. Uh, where, where are ways that I could serve as a missionary to this city? And, and, and they would give me resources. Well, here's some opportunities in town. You can go serve. Where are your gifts? Where are your opportunities? You know. And now, here's the way I see it. I see now God has given me, because I'm a believer in Christ, the Holy Spirit of God. We believe that? We believe that? He gives us the Holy Spirit of God. So then everywhere that I go, the Spirit of God is working through me, and the gospel should come out. If I'm a true believer, it should come out. And so now, because I'm a believer, now when I move to a specific city or I move to a specific neighborhood, I believe that the sovereign God of the universe has divinely appointed me in that particular neighborhood. And not only that, before the foundation of the world, he's placed my specific uh, neighbor right next door that do not know him that have a totally different background but he's going to use my background born in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina becoming a believer at 11 years old uh, from a divorced family from an alcoholic father he's going to use all of these things and God, how God changed me in my father's life at once and we got baptized together he's going to use that story in this person's life who lives next to me, who's from, I got a neighbor from Boston, uh, who's a Catholic. He's going to use that story for this guy to hear the gospel. And I believe that before the foundation of the world, God had this thing planned out perfectly. And this is how the sovereignty of God works in the way that we see missions. That that annoying co-worker was put there by God's divine plan for you to be a missionary in that person's life. That neighbor, yep, that one, the one that I'm talking about, you know who I'm talking about. The one with the dog, that one. God's put that neighbor in your life so that you could be a missionary to that neighbor. By the way, I almost got bit by our neighbor's Rottweiler. And I have no, the tree went down, the hurricane, and I had no longer a fence. So we've gotten all these dogs using the bathroom in the yards. Um, and I looked up, and I had a, a rake, uh, it's Monday, and this is my excuse for not doing the yard. But um, I had a rake, and I looked up, and I see this Rottweiler foaming 
mouth, Brock Wilder, growling at me. And I actually, I vertically, I jumped so high over my fence to get away from him. And I knocked on the front door, and Jess was laughing, said, what are you, you know? I said, there is a huge dog. And I tell the cop, and he's not near as scared as I am. I'm like, there's a cop, there's a Brock Wilder in our yard, you know? So, anyway, I think he's gone. But, so, this is how missions, this is how my understanding of God Sovereignty and control over all things sees, views the way that I see missions. Do you see how God's sovereignty matters? Understanding his control of all things matters in our life and even in how we are missionaries to people. What about suffering? What about marriage? How can we apply this to many things? And I think if we understand it rightly, it will change our lives. And so Jesus gives us two stories here in Luke 7. And Luke gives us two stories about Jesus' life in Luke 7. And it's gonna, we're going to learn a little bit about God's control and God's authority over people and over the world. All right? Luke 7. Starting in verse 1. It says this. And after he finished all, these say, all his sayings and hear, in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion who had had a servant who was sick at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. Now, Centurion was a Roman official. Um, Centurion is not a high rank. It, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a middle ground rank. It's kind of like a uh, captain. It'd be like a captain who would oversee people. So he, has, he understands authority well. He understands that he has people under him, and he also has people over him. So he knows how to uh, be an authoritative figure, and he also knows how to submit to, a, to authority. So that's very important to know when we understand where Jesus is going or where Luke is going with this story. What he does is he has a servant who is sick, and he wants this man to be healed. Now, this is very, very uncommon. Um, what normally would happen if a guy that high-ranked would, if he had any type of servant that was sick, he actually could kill him and hire the new guy. So this guy's sick. I can put this guy to death. I can bring in the new guy. But this guy, this centurion uh, Roman official has uh, compassion over the sick man. And this is really, really rare. So I want to show you that. So verse 3. Verse 3, it says this. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent the elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal this servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he, know, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built our synagogue. Now, notice here the posture of this centurion guard. Uh, this, he is not uh, gathered around Jesus like most of the time when Jesus would travel and he'd do miracles. Uh, people would gather around him hoping that he would uh, perform a miracle on them, that he would touch them or that he would heal them with some type of word or some type of action that he would do. So most of the time a, a crowd would kind of follow him like he was a rock star. But this guy is, is totally different. He has a totally different posture in the way that he approaches Jesus. He's like, I can't go up to him. I can't go up to Jesus. He's, he's the authority. He's over me. I have no right to speak to this authoritative figure over my life. And plus, I'm not a Jew. I'm not a Jew. I'm not one of you guys. 
He's one of you guys. He's a Jew. So why would he come to me, a Gentile, a non-Jew? Why would he ever do this? And so what Jesus is showing us, what Luke's showing us here about Jesus, is that Jesus cares uh, beyond the Jew. He cares also for the Gentile, which has always been his purpose, by the way. He's always been for the Gentile and also the Jew. It's been both. He's always been for both. And so he's going here to this Gentile. And what he does is he sends these elders, these Jewish elders who are uh, these uh, religious leaders that he would send to go and speak to him. So Jesus is extending his ministry. And so it's very interesting here because this... uh, this um, centurion doesn't have this understanding of, he's got this understanding of, um, I have to now get someone to go and speak on my behalf to Jesus. I need someone to mediate between me and Jesus. And I just think this is so awesome because aren't you glad that we don't have to have a mediator between us and Jesus? That we, because he is our great high priest, we can go to him directly. We don't have to have religious leaders to go and speak in our behalf. We can go to him and ask for forgiveness of sins and come to him in times of need. That he will bring us off of our burden and then we can go to him directly. It's such a beautiful picture. And so this man does come humbly. And that should be our posture when we approach Jesus. Look in verse 6. And Jesus went to him, went with him. And he was not far from the house. And the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come over to my roof. Therefore, I do not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authorities with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now, I want you to notice this man is not arrogant in his position, but he's just saying, I understand how authority works. I understand that when you command something to happen, it will happen. I have people under me, and I have people over me. I get authority. I get authority. And he knows he's attached authority. Listen to this. He's attached authority and control to the very character and nature of Jesus. He knows that this is what Jesus is. This is who Christ is. He is one over authority. And notice what he says. He says, you don't have to come and touch this man for this man to be healed. Just say the word. You don't even have to be at the house. You don't have to be under the roof. Just say the word and this guy is going to be healed. You can be miles away. You can be in another country. And if you speak, this man will be healed. So he gets God's character. And this is totally different than the way the crowd understood Jesus. The way that the crowd understood Jesus. Let me just show you this in Luke 6. Luke six seventeen. And they came to him and they stood on a, on a level place with a great cl- uh, crowd of his disciples and multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem on the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon. Verse 18, who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And notice how the crowd wants to see Jesus. And the crowd sought to, what? Touch him. For power came out of him. And he healed 
them all. The crowd wanted to touch him, to touch him. Their understanding of God and his control over all things is limited to just his touch. If I'm close to him, he can do this. The centurion Roman official's understanding of God was he has control without touching. He can speak and he will be healed. I love this. I love it. If you think back in Luke 4, Peter's mother, um, Peter's mother-in-law rather, is sick. Notice what it says in Luke 4.38. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. And they appealed to him on her behalf. And look what, he, look what he does. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever. And it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve him. See the difference? See the difference? These people who had faith in Christ, they knew that he had the power to just speak, say the word, and these people would be healed. Say the word. I know that you control these things. You don't, we don't need to, to have you right here in our presence for you to do this. You have control, and you can just telepathically heal this guy. It's crazy. It's crazy. So when we look at this. It's a different Response, And let me show you why this is different. You guys ready? You guys ready? Verse 7, or verse 9, chapter 7. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he says, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such, give me the word, faith. faith. And when those who had, who had been sent to his house, they found the servant well. He had Faith, And this is the difference. This is a different language that Jesus uses here. He says he has faith. He has faith in the character and the person of Christ. He has faith that Christ did not even have to be there in the flesh to do this, that he can control uh, the cosmos, that this man could be healed. He had faith in knowing the person of Jesus. And this is totally different than the crowd. The crowd is like, there's power oozing out of this guy. I just got to touch him and I'm going to be fine. But this guy understood God's plan and sovereignty over all things. That this guy's sick, but you know what? If he, if he does heal this guy, all he's got to do is just say the word and this guy will be fine. Totally different. He has this type of faith. And so, something else happens the very first time. Jesus, it says he marveled. At him, most of the time people are marveling at what Jesus says, but this time, someone's mar- Jesus is marveling after what someone actually says. It's totally different, and he says, "Not even the people of Israel get this. They don't even understand your character. They don't even understand the way that you are. I get the way that you are. That you have authority over all things, all things." So, this Gentile non-Jew gets it. And his people did not. And I think sometimes we, we take faith as it's some type of caddy word that we use. Like in, and we usually do it when we want to bail ourselves out of a situation. Like, for instance, when I was, um, went to uh, school in upstate New York after high school, it was a Bible institute. And what they would put me through was uh, 
it was like Bible boot camp. I had to do like, I had to read systematic theology and all these things that everyone loves to do um, on a regular basis. And I had to do um, Bible survey and I knew every, who, who wrote which book and what year it was written. And um, so I did that for a year. I signed up for it. And, um, and what they would do is they would put us out on the streets. And I, as at 18 years old, I thought it was awesome. Now I think it's like the worst thing I could ever do. But they would put me out on the streets in New York City to um, get up front and, and share the gospel. And so they'd give me, I had a, a little paint set that I had to do. And I had to paint like, you know, two division, like two, two cliffs. And there's one in the middle. And you're trying to get to God. And you can't make it on your own. So the cross is always going to be the bridge builder. And you guys ever see that before? Um, and so here I am with um, a southern accent, and the very first place they put us is Greenwich Village, um, which, I mean, I'm, I don't, you know, I don't fit the profile, right? I had a Looney Tunes tie on because that was, that was cool then, I think. Um, and, and I'm up front. No, it wasn't. Okay, it's never cool. Okay. <laughs> Somebody told me it was. And, um, so I was there with a Looney Tunes tie in Greenwich Village, New York. Sharing the gospel. And I remember we would just have these conversations with people in Greenwich Village about the gospel. And so this one guy comes up on the bike, and he's a, um, I think it was a professor. And uh, he has a bike, and he's pulling up. He says, you know what, faith is impossible. I'll never believe in, in Jesus because of faith. And faith, is, it can't happen. And I, I was so, like, bold at 19. Um, I knew everything. And so I told him, I said, well, you didn't think about faith when you got on that bike you, you know, that bike's holding you up. You got faith in that bike. I bet you do, you do have faith because you're sitting on that bike right now and it's holding you up. And I was like, I was really happy. And he just was like, you, you know, he just looked at me like, oh, that's cute. You know, and just rode off. And I thought to myself, yeah, I showed him. And I was like really cocky about it. Really cocky about, I've got faith. I, I get faith. He's just an idiot. Like it's that easy, Right? Like faith can be equivalent to sitting in a chair or riding a bike. I think it might mean more than that when when we call people to faith. Like we're saying, do you believe that God came in the form of a man through a virgin, lived a perfect sinless life, died on a bloody cross for your sins. He took on all the sins of the world at once. And when he died, he, three days later, he rose again from the grave. And by the way, he's from Nazareth, but nothing good ever comes from Nazareth. And now we should worship him and submit your life to him because he's the creator of all things. That is a little bit different than a bike. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. And so I think we cop out so often with the word faith. We kind of use it like it's a, a, a junk drawer word that gets us out of really tough conversations. Like the person who comes to you and says, how do you know the Bible's real? What do we say? We just have faith, right? Really, I think we can go a little bit further in the conversation than just have faith, right? If God is so good, why do bad things happen? Oh, just faith. Oh, okay, well, let me pray and receive Jesus right now. Does that ever happen? Does that ever happen? No, I mean, I think we should just say, I don't know. That's better, okay? So let's just practice this. I don't know, but I will find the answer for you, right? That's better than just saying, just have faith. That's, that's trash, man. You don't have that faith. Somebody answered that question for you. Somebody answered that for you. And here's the thing. I think there are points in which... The sovereign God of the universe begins to soften the hearts of a non-believer to where their objections won't matter as much as their 
response to Jesus. That's a great doctrine called irresistible grace, where the grace of God is just so overwhelming in your life, and you say, you know what? I don't know how the Bible's written, and it's crazy. It doesn't make a lot of sense that... uh, that Jesus was born of a peasant girl who said she was a virgin. That's a little strange, but I do know that he really loves me and he died for me and he, he's calling me. It's strange. I feel this unbelievable tug on my heart to all of a sudden my sins are, I'm, I'm aware of my sinfulness and my wickedness and I, I want to respond to him and, I, and I'm going to. I don't have a choice. I've got to respond to him. He's so good and he's so loving to me. And then the questions come later, and we say, oh, well, okay, somebody's saying, how did the Bible really, how was it really written? Somebody explain it to me. And then we work through it, and we process it, and we, we want to we know the answers later, and that makes sense. But I don't think we should just do that to people and just throw it out and say, just have faith. Trust me, it'll all work out. I, I want to be the church that goes there with people, that we have some of the answers. And the answers that we don't have, we'll say, you know what? I've got people in my church that might know a little bit about that. I might be able to answer that for you. But in the meantime, let me just show you the greatness of Christ and who Christ is and the gospel. And we want to point them back to the cross and what Christ has accomplished for us. But I don't want to just throw that out like it's something that's really easy. Because it's hard, man. It's hard. I mean, it's hard for me. I'm, I've been a believer most of my life. And this thing is still difficult. Still challenging. It's a gift from God. Let's not forget that. So when we hold ourselves up high like, we just need to have faith. I've got it. Just remember, that thing that you got was given to you by the goodness of God. That you might believe. Let's go further. This gives us a second story in the text. Verse 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had, who had died began uh, being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And this is very strange. Um, another strange story, by the way. Two truly really strange stories in, in Luke 7. Um, she was probably a very popular woman because most of the time, uh, if you had a, someone in your family die in Jewish custom, you would have to hire people to kind of be a part of the procession as the person would be buried. And so... What would typically happen? You could hire musicians. It was always like, I, I spread somewhere, there, there was always had to be a flute player present, um, which I really don't want at my funeral. But um, these people always had a flute player present uh, at a procession. And then they would hire professional mourners. That They were hired to basically mourn at your procession. And I think that's really strange. Like, how did, how did you get that job? Um, I'm a professional mourner. Here's my card. You know, like, that's, that's who these people were. And they were hired to do that. Now, this lady didn't need it because she has most of the crowd that was with her at this procession. Uh, maybe her son was a very pop- popular uh, young one. Or maybe she was a, a very well-known woman throughout the community. But it was very, very bothersome to this whole town that we know very little about in Scripture. And so they are walking along, and she is weeping. And we see Jesus uh, begin to show her uh, compassion. And he's showing this widow compassion. Now, I want you to see this because throughout Scripture, you see Jesus consistently uh, pouring into the hearts of those who are 
really broken and distraught. Like I can't imagine um, losing your son or losing your daughter. And, and it, for those of you who have faced that in this room, I know that that is probably one of the worst things that you could face is watch your own child die. And this woman is experiencing this. And in this culture, it's a lot different. They didn't have nursing homes then for this woman to be set up in. Uh, that means that there would be no one that would provide for her. She's a widow. And now her son has died. That means that she would not be taken care of. And so Jesus is giving this widow compassion in a very profound way. And later, I, honestly, the, the church adopts Jesus' uh, mentality and how he communicates to the widows and orphans. If you look at like James uh, 127, it says that religion is pure and undefiled before God. God the Father, this is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained uh, from the world. And so Jesus is showing us what the church would do later through the Holy Spirit, through the truth of his word, that we were going to do this later. And so what, what you see here is Jesus filling in the gaps of where men fail or where men cannot You see this consistently throughout Scripture. Jesus is going to the broken woman at the well. He's going to the woman who was caught in adultery. He's consistently showing up where women who, without fathers, he replaces them and becomes their real father, becomes their true father. You see women who do not have husbands, and he becomes uh, the place, and he becomes the substitute for that. I got to show you guys, ladies, this. I mean, this is important for you to see. Where your fathers or where your husbands fail, Jesus will often pick up the slack. For you fathers, he wants you to do your role and fulfill your role as a father, as a, as a, as a husband. But Jesus is coming in in multiple places in Scripture, and he does this. It's beautiful. So Jesus is coming to this woman and he's filling a void in her life. And what he does, this stranger coming to town, let's look at what he does for this woman's life. Verse 14. Then he came up and he touched the bier, which by the way is the the dead body. It's the casket. uh, There's an open casket that people would uh, uh, take people out of town in in their procession. It says, and the bearers stood still and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. The man sat up. I want you to see now the response from the crowd as this man, man sits up. There's, there's a few responses. These are very mixed emotions that you're going to see here in the text. Verse 16. Fear seized them all. And they glorified God saying, a great prophet has risen among us. The very first thing that we're going to see is fear. That's the first response that they had to seeing God's healing over this man. And I want you to remember this because in the first century, we forget that people were afraid then too when they saw miracles. But I want you to think about it. You're at a funeral and it's open casket and a man just comes up and the guy sits straight up. I mean, how would you respond? Right? These people are, it's this fear sees them. They're having heart attacks, right? And they go, oh, wait, wait, wait. 
this has got to be a prophet. This has got to be something amazing that's come. And they understood this idea of uh, a prophet healing people. If you look in like, I won't read the text, but First Kings 17, uh, you see Elijah do the exact same thing. It's the exact same healing that just happened in Elijah in uh, First Kings uh, 17. Uh, Elijah, a great prophet, was known for doing this miraculous healing. And so when people look at Jesus, they attach that to, this is a great prophet. The prophets of old, the, the prophets in the Old Testament, they healed people. And Elijah goes up to a, a woman who just lost a child and he heals her. And the exact same thing happens. Jesus is just duplicating that. And so what they attach this to, this is just a great prophet. This is just a great prophet. So is that enough? Is him being a great prophet enough? No. Let's finish what they said, because this is, the, this is the key. A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. Now, that is totally different. They began to see him beyond just a prophet, but they began to see him as God. As God. This understanding here, this is an Old Testament understanding of who God is. They, they would consistently say when God is going to visit his people, when God is going to visit his people. If you look in like early in Luke, you see three different songs saying, saying by one is by Mary. And she said, the Lord is with us. You see Zechariah who also sings the song. He says that he has visited his people. You see Simeon, the very next chapter in early in Luke, Luke 2. He says the very same thing, that God has visited his people. And they continue to sing this song as an act of worship of saying, God, the God of the universe, has humbled himself as a man. He's pitched his tent among us, and he's here with us. He's in our presence. And they knew at this point that this is God. This, this word visit is where the word uh, episcopal com- comes from. Episcopals would have a, a, a ruling uh, bishop who oversees, who's a pastor or a shepherd over his church. And they understood the way that he would visit was he cared for his flock and he meets the needs of his people. And he's aware of wolves and he's there active and proactive in your life. And this is the way that they understood what it meant when God visited his people. That this is the man who would shepherd us and shepherd our hearts. And he would come to us. In our afflictions. So this is their, their understanding of God immediately when they begin to see this miracle happen. They go from fear to he's a prophet. No, he's God. He's visited us. He cares for us. He cares as we're mourning and grieving over our loss, friend. So we have two different stories. The centurion believed because he knew Jesus' character even though he was far away and he couldn't see him, which is faith, Hebrews 11. Then we have this woman, this widow, and the crowd, they believed because they just saw right in front of us, right in front of them, what Jesus had done. So there are times in our lives where we need faith in God, and sometimes it's right there in front of us, and we can just see it. God, you're real because this is what you've done right in front of me. I can see it. You provided in this way, and I can see it. You've, you've helped my sick family member become well. I can see that right in front of my eyes. And it's beautiful. I'm so grateful. Aren't we grateful when he does that and we can just see it? 
God, I got that job I've been praying for, and I can just see it right in front of my eyes. And there are other times that we need the faith, like the centurion guard. He says, I can't see it, but I know your character, and I know who you are, that you are a God of provision, that you are a shepherd who cares for his people, and that even in this suffering right now, even in this crazy time of my life where nothing makes sense, that you're the God of the universe, that you are ordaining my steps and my suffering for your good and your glory because you showed that you love me through the cross of Christ. There's times we're going to get both just like this. It's going to be right in front of our face, and it makes perfect sense. God's here. God's present. He's doing things for me, and there's going to be times where it just seems like he's really distant. But if we know his character and know his control over all things, including our hearts, that he is our bishop, he is our shepherd, he cares for us. He's proven that on the cross. So this is a, a really a matter of trust and God's authority in our lives. What if our church was known for just responding and seeing that on a daily basis and we would mature in Christ in this way that we get you, God, we understand you, we know you? I think it would make a a huge difference in the city who we're reaching, who we're meeting on on a daily basis that God is ordaining your steps and he's proven his love for you on the cross. Let's pray.